Welcome listeners, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Sigma Delta Talk. I'm Margo Manley Lima, National President for Sigma Delta Talk. Today's guest is Susan Sloan, author of A Seat at the Table, Women, Diplomacy, and Lessons for the World, which explores gender parity and equality. Susan has met with more than 60 countries through diplomacy, advocacy, and experiential education. Susan is also a graduate of our Ada chapter at the University of Georgia. Susan, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Sigma Delta Talk. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I know. I'm so excited to connect with a fellow sister, a fellow Washingtonian. Um, So much to talk about. Last month, um, the SCT Alumni Book Club read your book, A Seat at the Table, Women, Diplomacy, and Lessons for the World. Your book explores gender equality and diplomacy and why it is so important in order to address global issues. Um, There are several themes and reoccurring thoughts about the book that I definitely want to dive into. But first, I'm hoping you can share with us a little bit about how this book came to fruition. Well, I always knew I wanted to write a book, uh, even during my early days uh, being at SDT at the University of Georgia. Uh, I really focused on writing. I was in the School of Journalism. I was majoring in public relations. But it wasn't until after grad school at Georgetown University that I received an opportunity to write a book as part of a creator's program for working professionals who want to write and publish a book full time. So that's what got me involved. But I I always knew I wanted to write a book. However, the, the topic of the book really came to be after the Me Too movement got started. And I I work in diplomacy in Washington, D.C., where I meet with many women leaders from all over the world, not only in D.C., but across the globe. And hearing their stories of being trailblazers, entrepreneurs, bringing other people to the table, and really leaders in their field made me think, I want to tell that story. I want to tell the story of women being trailblazers, of being role models of really being leaders in their own right, not just as the stories of the Me Too movement as women's as survivors, but really this other lens of that women can do anything and that they aren't held back just because of their gender. Definitely. Um, So the women that you interviewed, did you have a personal connection or relationship with them or did you seek them out because you were struck by their contributions or perhaps, you know, had other connections to them? A little bit of both. Uh, For some of the women I interviewed, I I knew through the diplomatic circles of being in Washington, D.C., some of the ambassadors that I knew. However, when I started talking to people about the book and the topic, that's when it really came to light and it started really rolling in. Uh, Many different, even male friends of mine came to me and said, oh, you're writing a book about women in diplomacy and trailblazers. I have this amazing woman you have to interview. Uh, And so it, it really came from everyone else also sharing their connections and that network became really vibrant. And another thing I noticed uh, is when I, I took away the fear of what am I doing? I'm writing a book and who's going to sit down with an interview for me? And I started actually talking about it with other people. That's when my whole world opened up for all the interviews. And in one particular moment, I'll tell you a quick story about this. I was at a reception I was meeting with uh, some former diplomats, and one former diplomat said to me, oh, have you thought about interviewing for your book, the first woman Hungarian ambassador? 
And I had met her multiple times through my work, but I didn't know her personally. And she said, hey, reach out to her. She has an amazing story. So I reached out to her on LinkedIn, and she's currently working in D.C. at a think tank. Uh, she's no longer a diplomat anymore. And she responded to me from a cold message on LinkedIn, and we corresponded with one another. We set up an interview. We had an amazing an hour and a half interview in her office in person. And then after the interview ended, she said, Susan, who else are you interviewing? And I listed my, my list of countries, my hopeful countries I wanted to include and all these amazing women leaders. She said, hey, copy me on those email invitations for those interviews. And I'll let them know that I sat down with you and had an interview with you and that they should do it too. And so really through her support, it really became uh, a much wider net for me to interview. And all those women agreed. Uh, and so I don't know if she actually you know, reached out to them or not, but I did copy her on those emails and all of them did say yes. So there's something to say in the, the sisterhood coming together. Yes, definitely. So kind of in a similar vein, you know, one of the reoccurring themes that I, I um, extracted from the book is, is the importance of having mentors um, and specifically the importance of having both women and men serve as mentors in a professional context. Why do you think it's so valuable to have both and what roles have they played in your life? Mentors are so important uh, throughout one's career. And yes, I mentioned this in the book. I am thinking right now about the deputy chief of mission from Singapore mentioning how the ambassador was a mentor to her in her career and pushing her to excel. Uh, and, and many of the women they interviewed mention a pivotal point in which they had mentors. And at the same time, a few mentioned that they didn't have mentors, uh, that really there were no women to connect with on certain levels because women weren't in these high-level roles. Uh, and so there is this now need to give back uh, that if you are in a role and you can bring more people to the table to serve as a mentor. And I think about my own life and my own career so far, and there are a handful of different individuals who have served as my own mentors, and I, I like to call them my trusted advisors. I have my own personal board of directors, essentially, and I came up with that idea during grad school. Uh, they taught us, oh, you need to have your own board of directors or your trusted advisors, and there's one woman in particular I was introduced to uh, from a colleague of the organization I work for, and she has sat down with me multiple times to talk about my career, to talk about where to go to grad school, uh, help me redo my resume, uh, talk to me about salary negotiation, and, and really give me the confidence and the skill set to move forward. And we have become friends as well, and she's very senior in her career, but having that relationship and staying in touch with her is very important. And what I find with uh, young professionals, they always ask, hey, how do I get a great mentor? How do I, how do I find someone to connect with? And, and it can't just be what you get out of it. It has to be what you also give to the mentor as well. And I stay in touch with my mentors. I let them know what I'm doing. In addition to asking them what they're doing, what can I help with? What can I give to them as well? It's a two-way street. That's the way relationships are. So if you're looking for mentorship, you have to also know what is the value that you're bringing to their lives, not just to your own. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, and the other thing, when I think, reflect upon my own mentors, I think that there are some that I have come to because um, 
they have perhaps been a supervisor or it has happened organically where, you know, I, I have a relationship that I'm able to build and I seek their guidance. But conversely, there has also been instances where I seek out specific people because either I want to be them when I grow up or I want to understand how they got to where they are. Um, and I think sometimes we forget that it's okay to be assertive and, and to strategically seek out individuals who you think could help guide you along the way that sometimes it doesn't happen organically all the time. Sometimes your immediate supervisor is not your mentor. That's okay. Um, but how do you find those individuals who can really help you along the way um, and, and to continuously think about that and then also think about how you can serve as a mentor for somebody else you know like perhaps you think that oh you know maybe i'm not where i want to be in my career who would want to be me or who who would think to come to me for advice but i think that there's always somebody who is interested in learning how you got there and and what you had to do and what you want and just picking your brain about different things and i think we need to think more creatively about who serves as mentors for us right I completely agree, 100%. I, I look at uh, different young individuals who have crossed my path and that they tell me that I serve as their mentor and, and that I'm giving back to them. And I think that's the way you have to also pay it forward, right? And you don't know who can learn from you and in what capacity. I'll tell you this, if anyone reaches out to me on LinkedIn and wants to have a conversation, I always respond and I always give them my time. Time is the most precious gift you can give to anyone. And I know that from the mentors who are giving me their time and also the time I give to others, uh, having a 30-minute conversation to an hour conversation with an individual can change their career and their life in so many ways, more than people know. And so even when you think you don't have time for a lasting relationship with somebody, take 30 minutes, take an hour. You don't know if that advice can shape their entire future. And usually, usually it can Definitely. So in total transparency, when I read the information uh, for your book, I envisioned a much older woman. Um, <laughs> I, I assume that given the topic of the book and your professional experience that you were like a very seasoned professional. So I'm, I'm owning my own bias here. Um, but one of the women that you interviewed said this, I'm not sure what's worse, being young or being a woman. What are your thoughts on this question? There's different ways to view that in multiple lenses. Uh, when I think of where I am in my career, I mean, look, I am right now 34 years old. Uh, I live in Washington, D.C. I'm not married. Uh, and I don't own, I, I've written an apartment. I don't own a car. Uh, and I have a graduate degree and I wrote a book. Uh, when you look at the grand scheme of life, I'm, I'm young and I'm a woman. And there have been multiple, multiple experiences that I've had where I've walked into a room and people haven't thought that I should be sitting at the table or that I'm not the person they need to speak to about X, Y, or Z issue. Or I've had many people comment, wow, you're so young. You're so young looking. And I say, great, I must be doing something right then. Uh, I hope to stay, look this young for a very, very long time. Uh, and I find that, that in Washington, I've had to prove myself. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I got a graduate degree, to give myself a larger knowledge base uh, and to have that educational component back me up. Uh, but what I find of being, when people say, look at an individual who is young and, and maybe a woman or female, uh, they also have fresh perspectives. 
different people throughout your lifetime and your career have a different vision depending upon where they come from. And what I mean by that is we have to think of multiple lenses. One, yes, is gender. Two, age. People in the workforce, we shouldn't discount people who are very young. We shouldn't discount people who are older. Everyone has different experiences that they can add value to. And so if we are discriminating against diversity, that doesn't help any organization or company or organ like society, right? What we need to be is inclusive, inclusive of gender, inclusive of age, inclusive of religion, sexual orientation, uh, socioeconomic status. That, that diversity gives us a different way of thinking. And we are going to come up with better solutions for so many different issues if we have diversity at the table from all those different lenses. And, and now when people say, oh, you know, you're, you're quite young to have written a book or you're quite young to do this or that, or you're quite young to have visited seven continents. And I say, yeah, imagine what I'm going to do with the next part of my life. Uh, and hopefully I'll be, I'll continue to be giving back to society. But I've, I've realized that I can't help what people think of me and their perceptions of me. Uh, I can only think of what I think of myself, right? I can only have that perspective of myself and try to be positive. And what others think of me, someone's always going to have something either positive or negative. And, and really, uh, <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. But I, I have to continue to think positively and, uh, and to go forward. And, and, you know, I am young, so who knows what I'll be able to accomplish in the next few years. Well, I imagine it's a lot. <laughs> we if shall I was see. a betting individual, I would I would put my money money on you. <laughs> but I think it's really interesting uh, to uh, explore intersectionality here between you know being young and being a woman. I also appreciate in your book how you explore the interplay between being a woman uh, within various cultures and nationalities, which I can only assume informs one's perspective and. Um, experience. Was there anything that stuck out to you when thinking about that? Yes. Uh, how we view ourselves, especially as women, is very different based on our cultural context. And I think about the ambassadors I sat down from Scandinavian Nordic countries, uh, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Iceland. They have a completely uh, different perspective of how women are viewed because they have really reached almost this level of gender equality within their own countries. Uh, they're still working on certain initiatives and policies, but really they have a remarkable uh, sense of gender equality in their countries. Now, when I sat down with other individuals, women from the United States, uh, and one woman diplomat who her country is not named in the book, but from a Muslim majority country, uh, they didn't view that they had gender equality in their own countries. And they view that, yes, they are still seen as women diplomats, not just as diplomats, but women diplomats, and that they're fighting those stereotypes. And they constantly are, are asking, oh, like, should I wear makeup? How, how am I dressed? Uh, you know, are people listening to my ideas? Should I be at the table? And I do find that many of the women from that, of countries that have reached a farther a greater sense of gender equality, they don't have those same questions. In fact, uh, being a woman uh, has made them stand out. When I sat down with the Swedish ambassador, she said, hey, you know, when I've been in countries when I've been one of the very few women ambassadors, I stand out. 
between the sea of men and gray suits and gray hair. And the prime minister sees me and I'm going to take that and use that as an advantage. Uh, so I, I do believe that cultural context, it, it really does matter. Every country uh, handles gender in a different way and sees gender in a different way and works on gender in a different way. And right now, I think in our own country, in the United States, there are so many things we can learn from other countries and policies that we could use to help with gender parity, equality, and equity. And we and those topics are mentioned in the book. If we only take a few of those policy ideas that are mentioned in the book, uh, wow, our country would be so different. Yes, totally agree. That's terrific. There's a consistent message in the book that women lead differently than men. And for that reason, they should have a seat at the table to offer their unique set of skills or perspective. In your opinion, is there any issue with suggesting that men and women are inherently different rather than focusing on commonality? That's an interesting question. I do find, especially after sitting through all these different interviews and, and researching this topic, that, uh, yes, like men and women do things differently. And I think it's okay to celebrate that. And I think it's okay to talk about, uh, we often talk about the individual being so unique. And that's what makes us each individual, right? No matter how you identify, whether you identify as male or female, uh, woman and a man, however you, or um, a fusion of both, however you identify makes you you and uniquely you. And there are certain skill sets and ways you see the world that are different. And that's okay. And I think that's what makes us successful. And when we talk about having uh, more seats at the table to have this diversity of thought. It's, it's not just about having women there to have women there uh, and decorating the list, right? Uh, really, it's this idea of that we do think differently and we do see things differently. Uh, and when we look at diversity of opinion, of thought, and where we come from, we have to have all of those different lens, lenses at play in order to get better ideas. And there are commonalities between men and women, yes. At the same time, this whole book talks about how women use re their resilience, their emotional intelligence, their active listening, their consensus building, all of these different skill sets that they have and that they harness. Uh, are different than men. And it's not saying that men don't have them. Women just use them differently. And as the Hungarian ambassador said to me, she said, Susan, you know, we use one aspect that many people don't use. We use our heart. We use that emotional intelligence of, of, of heart. And if you can be vulnerable enough to use heart, that says something in your leadership style. And in the book, I talk about different leadership styles, and in many of her interviews, women say how they, they are perceived differently uh, and how they lead. And there's also this idea that uh, ego doesn't play so much a part, that right now, looking at where we are in the world, uh, I'm sitting here in my home as you're sitting in yours as we're doing this uh, podcast because of a global pandemic. And if we look at the countries that have women leading the way in leadership, 
such as Germany, Denmark, Iceland, Finland, Norway, and Taiwan, they have done better in the coronavirus pandemic because of their consensus building, because of their transparency, because of their vulnerability of sharing with their nations what the realities are at play. I'm including in New Zealand in that list too. And looking at the countries that are led by men, they really haven't done as well. And that says something that of their different leadership styles. So yes, we could have commonalities and yes, men can have some of these qualities that women have too, but women lead differently and it's proving in real time, which is fascinating to see. And I think you, you address it a bit in the book um, when you talk about how women often have more self-doubt and when they use that in a productive way, this encourages them to uh, engage more people in the decision-making process and entertain perspectives that may be different from their own. Um, however, if, if self-doubt takes over you, it could also be paralyzing and prohibit us from advancing. So if women are more inclined to have self-doubt, how do we ensure that we channel it for the good? That's, that's a good question. Uh, and I love that you mentioned this aspect that the Finnish ambassador describes that her inherent self-doubt has led to more consensus building because she brings more opinions uh, to the table and which has helped her in her career and, and as a diplomat. And uh, we also need to look though, when we're thinking about this self-doubt uh, that and I've been asked a few questions about imposter syndrome, about, uh, you know, whether you're, you're trying to do something that you're like, ah, I'm, I'm really not good enough, or I'm not at this level or, or anything like that. And what, I, what I've learned through this whole process uh, and writing this book is that we, we will always have a little bit of self-doubt. And a little bit of self-doubt is, is healthy uh, because there's humility, right? There's a little bit of humility. You don't, you don't want to build your ego up so much that you think you're the be-all, end-all of everything and God's gift to earth, right? Right. At, at the same time, I think you said it so eloquently of you can't let it paralyze you. And... And I noticed that in this process, there was a, a time a few years ago that I, I knew I wanted to write a book and I, I spoke with a literary agent uh, about an opportunity. And they said, look, you don't have the pillars of publishing, a story, the story idea that you have is not that interesting and, and no, one's, <laughs> no one's ever gonna publish a book that you write. And I listened to that and I, I was like, wow, you know, this person's this agent's right and uh, I'm, I'm, this is never gonna happen for me. And I realized afterwards uh, from going through this process and actually writing a book and getting it published that the first step is in believing in myself. And, and while it might sound trite, uh, it is true. And in and, and one of the interviews, uh, Ambassador Barbara Bodine, who was an ambassador in Yemen uh, and also a deputy chief of mission in Kuwait uh, during the Iraqi invasion, uh, she said, you know, there's so many roadblocks in life, especially for women, and so many people are going to say no to you. However, you can't be one of those people. You have to say yes to yourself because when you hear no so many times, your only other option is to turn it into a yes. And so even when I started writing this book, I started saying yes to myself. I started saying, yes, you know what? I'm going to write this book. And yes, there are going to be people who are naysayers. Um, I'm not going to be one of them. And so shifting that self-doubt and saying, you know what? Yeah, there, there is some self-doubt, but I'm not going to be the one to let that take me over. And, and I think that's the important 
thing, anytime you want to do something in your life that's going against the grain or people say you shouldn't do it, uh, you have to be the one to say yes first. And you have to be the one to diminish that self-doubt to go ahead to make it happen. Um, I 100% agree. And there, there's a line in your book that I highlighted like five times because it really <laughs> spoke to me. Uh, you write, inclusion is not solely about including others. Being inclusive is also about proactively including yourself. And this line really hit me because I don't know if I had ever thought about my personal responsibility to advocate for my inclusion, right? And I think you just spoke about that right now, right? So many times we, and probably women more than men, we're waiting for somebody to invite us, right? Rather than sharing our idea, even if nobody asked for it, or attending a meeting or event, or throwing our name in a hat for a job that maybe seem out of reach, right? So like, the whole idea about like, how do we proactively include ourselves in spaces where we don't currently occupy? And I just, I just was really struck by that. That line, it, it, it continues to resonate with me uh, in so many ways. And, and look, I struggle this, with this myself. Uh, there are times when there are opportunities that I see that I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm qualified for that, or I don't know if I should be speaking with that. Or, am, I, am I enough to do that? And then I realize, you know, like, no, like, now yeah, I'm going to throw my hat into the ring. I, why not? Why should I be the one to say no to myself? Let them say no to me, right? Right. Exactly. right? Yeah. And so you just got to go for it. And and I, I check myself every so often because I find it challenging to do. And I have reread that line multiple times as well, even for myself. Uh, and, and women, I do think we, we do this a little differently. I, I don't think men do it as much. I don't, I don't see uh, some of my male colleagues and male friends um, questioning themselves as much as my women friends and colleagues. And I find that to be really fascinating. And so shifting this narrative is so important. And we are right now, I believe, in a huge societal change for women. Uh, we are going through another wave of uh, inclusion and uh, broadening our voice as a gender. And, and I think it's time that we start including ourselves and also encouraging others. So when sometimes, you know, if you have a good friend, uh, maybe it's a sorority sister, I don't know, uh, and that says, oh, I, I don't think I should do this. And you say, no, go for it. Like, why not? Um, are you also doing that for yourself? Um, if you could say to yourself and talk to yourself like a best friend, what advice would you give a best friend? And I find that when you shift that narrative, when you think about it that way in your own mind, you realize I would never talk to my best friend that way. I would encourage them to go forth and do it. And that's the way we need to start talking to ourselves. That's the way we need to encourage ourselves. I totally agree. And you referenced it in the book, but I thought it was fascinating about how women can not only think, how we should not only be thinking about like our personal interests and advancement, but the collective advancement of women. And you it's referenced or described to be like a sisterhood, right? And I know that you brought this up earlier um, in this episode, but um, of course it made me think of SDT and you know what a great opportunity we provide our undergraduate women to be that collective place where we are all interested in advancing one another and whatever capacity that means, right? To support and uplift. So I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about your collegiate experience at UGA and what it was like for you. 
being a part of SDT at the University of Georgia, Ada chapter, go dogs, uh, <laughs> was was such a, a really a transformative and amazing experience uh, and on multiple levels. Uh, one, uh, I understood from my mother, who was another sorority in, in her undergraduate years, um, how transformative those relationships were for her. And when I uh, pledged SDT and, and made that choice and they chose me and I chose them and uh, I, I felt a little bit like an outsider. I was a little bit uh, shy originally, uh, but it gave me the opportunity to become friends with and sisters with a different group of women I would have never have known. And going to the University of Georgia, there are many people who come from the Atlanta metro area, the metro Atlanta area. Uh, and I met so many different women, not only from Atlanta, but from all around the country who I would have never have met. And we bonded over this uh, sense of sisterhood, uh, working on philanthropic endeavors and being a part and active on our campus together. And, and now where I am in my mid thirties, uh, my group of some of my closest friends come from the sorority, whether in my own pledge class or the pledge class above me. And they are the ones that I call upon for advice, for support, to laugh. Uh, and we've stayed in touch over all these different years. And I know they're going to be a part of my life. And I really have SDT to thank for that. I wouldn't have met these women otherwise. Uh, and I, I do feel that when you go through all these different experiences, it, it really bonds you. Uh, and being a part of the sorority did that for me. And there are multiple choices that I've made in my life. Uh, from advice from my sisters. And I find that to be uh, not only heartwarming, but a, a place of, I'm grateful. I'm very, very grateful because if it weren't for SDT there, the of core group of friends, I wouldn't have. Uh, and so I, I feel very fortunate. I agree. I mean, I have the same experience to date. My best friends are from my chapter. Um, and I would also add to that is that, you know, being an alum and being somebody who's like active with other alums, it provides like a second wave of sisters to network and to grow with, you know, and I think that that's the unintended like beauty of being in a sororities and most of us think that it's just like for four years in college and then it's over but you know having the opportunity to remain engaged and connected and meet new people who maybe didn't go to my chapter but I um, interact with in a professional or volunteer or personal capacity I mean it's just so enriching how the sorority experience how this notion of sisterhood could really continue to add value to your life way past college. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And and that network changes, right? And there's been in different uh, professional capacities that I have run into different women uh, who are, have been, in, have been in SDT at other college campuses. And I'm like, you were in SDT and you were in SDT. And then we say our secret phrase. Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and it's, it's crazy who you meet in life. And there's that instant bond of that connection, right? Uh, and, and grant, you know, every SDT chapter is different on, depending upon which campus that you go to and which chapter you're a part of. Uh, but I do find there's this intrinsic bond, which I feel uh, really fortunate that I was able to have and still have, right? I mean, I wouldn't be speaking to you right now had it not been for SDT, right? Exactly. Uh, so in multiple ways, in multiple ways that those connections continue to grow. Definitely. 
Susan, I'm so incredibly thankful that you shared your time with us today. I know that your time is precious, but I am so thankful that you were able to join us on this episode. I really appreciate it. For our listeners, if you haven't read it yet, definitely buy and read A Seat at the Table. It is, uh, will be a very thought-provoking and inspiring book for sure. Thank you so much for having me and look forward to staying in touch and hearing what people think about the book, uh, especially all you sisters out there. Get in touch with me. I would love to hear from you. Thank you, Susan. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Be sure to see the show notes to learn how you can connect with Susan Sloan. I'm Margot Manley-Lima, and you've been listening to Segment Delta Talk.